Uh, welcome back, listeners, from Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network. This is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm Brandon Hill, a writer and editor with Central Sauce. And I'm here today with Mickey and Ryan. Mickey, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? What's going on, everybody? I'm Mickey Hellerback, also a writer for Central Sauce. Um, please check out uh, my newly released interview with uh, singer-songwriter Nia Grace from Oregon to London. Um, it's a really great um, piece on someone who submitted to our Submit Hub uh, account, actually, and then just released to me one of the best albums of the year. So yeah, go check that out. And I'm Ryan Gore, not messing up the intro this time, a uh, writer for Central Source. <clears throat> yeah, and I just released another Submit Hub related thing, my uh, review on Fika's latest song called Missing Me. Uh, it's, it is vibes, but I said more than that in the article, thankfully. And um, <laughs> and yeah, as I mentioned last time, this Chris Keyes interview that I did recently, um, I'm getting closer to releasing that. So keep an eye out. Yeah, we love Fika over here. That's F-I-K-A, Fika. Check him out. Check out Ryan's piece. Um, like I mentioned, I'm Brandon Hill, writer-editor. You can subscribe to my writing newsletter through my the link in my Twitter bio um, at Hoopla Hill. So what have you guys been listening to this week? Or just in general, since it's been a minute since we've done a what we're listening to. I uh, Well, in this past week, I've been uh listening there there are three things really that I feel like I from the kind of last week of releases that I feel like I've been bumping one is definitely laugh now cry later and watching the video over and over again particularly when he does the Muhammad Ali pose and he does the like head turn with the bubble same baby then uh the new Anderson Pack single with Rick Ross I mm. think is really crazy um that the hip boy production is really wild to me I feel like it's um I wrote a review actually on it uh, for another publication I, I write for called Euphoria Magazine. Um, I just, I feel like that, that energy, and then Hipboy also released another single with Nas. I, I mean, I like the Anderson Pack one a little bit better, but it's, he's doing kind of, um, kind of the style shifting and the way he's like leaning into people's lane, but still kind of keeping true to his style feels very like that kind of, uh, the time where Pharrell really started to branch out with people like mystical and the clips. Um, and I think I just, I, it's slightly different than something you've heard from him, but you can still feel like the core of his sound in it. I thought that was really cool. And then I've also been listening to the young Dolph album, which I think really just slaps. Yeah. I've been kind of just listening to podcasts, like <laughs> shout out to the empire film podcast. I've just been bumping that a lot. Shout out to um, Charlie Taylor on What's Good. I've been catching up with him. But uh, in terms of music, I've been literally exclusively listening to music to fall asleep. Like, uh, <laughs> so I've been listening to um, Godspeed, Your Black Emperor, Lift Your Skinny Fists a lot just to fall asleep because I think that music's beautiful and it makes me drift off. So yeah, check that out if you haven't heard it. Yeah, the uh, so Anderson Pack, man, he's been putting in work. the The lockdown remixes are all really great. Um, Jid and No Names Verses are both like no, like they literally took one of my favorite songs of the year and made it even better, which is wild. But aside from that, I actually think 
that releases have been going crazy recently. Um, the Amine album, I felt like came out of nowhere and is e it's easily my top five right now. And, you know, I'm trying to debate whether or not it's taking the number one slot for me, but I think I'm going to have to give it a little bit of space for the recency bias on that one. Um, so outside of Amine, uh, maybe a more outside the box pick here, but the new Glass Animals album is really, really good. I don't think it's quite as good as Zaba, um, but, you know, I'm definitely going to be with that a little more, giving that some more listens. Ryan, that might even make a good album to listen to as you're trying to fall asleep. They just nice. got that really, like, I don't know, that really, like, spacey, high-note EDM sound that's just really good to, like, kind of trance into. Um, so, yeah, you might definitely want to check that one out. So today, listeners... We have three excellent pieces from excellent journalists that we're bringing. Um, the first one we're going to cover is on being nimble while writing out uncertainty, an interview with Open Mike Eagle by Christina Lee. Then we're going to break into an NPR piece, The South is Rap's Past, Present, and Future by Brianna Younger. And we're going to end with T-Pain Tastes Gas While Eating Spicy Wings, Hot Ones episode with Sean Evans and First We Feast, because as we know, we all love Hot Ones, and we would love to talk about Sean Evans. Yo, Brandon, so, your, your delivery on that Hot Ones title was excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that for a second. I, I practiced many times. <laughs> so, Mickey, why don't you go ahead and uh, lead us off? I think oh, Ryan, no, Ryan, Ryan's that's right. The, Ryan, yeah. Ryan's the open mic eagle piece. Yeah, who else would bring enough Mikey rupees? Come on, man. right? <laughs> which by which by the way, just this piece alone got me to listen to like more open Mike Eagle and Ryan. I found that like whenever you bring like content on an underground rapper, whether you're bringing it to my attention or you yourself are writing about it, it always like way amps up my relationship with that rapper. Like I didn't listen to Open Mike Eagle a whole lot. Like I've heard songs here and there. Right. Um, but I like got back into one of his albums just like while I was listening to this and found some amazing singles that I like playlisted almost immediately. Yes. Um Hymnal and Happy oh. Wasteland Day are just two that yes. I wrote down. So Yes. Hymnal is beautiful. Samus is amazing verse. I'll send you more I'll send you more tracks after this because uh, I, I think I have something that blew your mind. Anyway, so this piece has an incredible title. It's called On Being Nimble While Riding Out Uncertainty which is an incredible title for the content of the piece and kind of the times we live in right now. It's by Christina Lee, and it's for a publication called The Creative Independent. And uh, yeah, as we discussed, it's an interview with Open Mike Eagle, who is an artist, a comedian, a podcaster, a wrestler, I think. I think a pro wrestler. <laughs> um, and all kinds of other things, which is kind of what this uh, piece is about is about how much he does in you know, being nimble while riding out the insurgency that is this year so I think of Mark Eagle is um, one of the most talented people on the planet just be to be able to do everything that I listed to a very high level is insane and to be able to do it as an independent artist and independent as independently as possible is very commendable so, um, something that we discussed, like, kind of just on our own, off, off the air, is how good, in people who, who conduct interviews, how good they are, how good, like, 
interview subjects they make. And I think this kind of proves that rule correct because uh, Christina, her prompts weren't very long and they weren't, she didn't ask any questions that might lead to specific places. But she asked just enough to get Mike Eagle going quite extensively on a lot of topics. And one of the things I love that Christina did was how she like flowed in and out of Mike's personal endeavours and kind of... Um, and his routines now, like, in a post-COVID world, while asking some questions that are more outward-looking at the world in general. And that kind of gives Mike the opportunity to drop some gems. Because, you know, as an interview, you kind of... That's kind of what you're aiming for, right? Is for your subject to drop something that is a bit more resonant than what you might usually get from an interview. Something that you... Like, I got that from that person, you know? And I think... With someone like Oak Mike Eagle, with the way he speaks on certain subjects, it would be a miss to not get him to speak on such subjects. So, um, yeah, he's such a thoughtful person. I think one example of that is when she asked when um, she asked about people's focus during these times. Um, she, he mentioned that people he had to he was mentioned trying to get people to listen to the stuff he was doing and pay, like cut guess pay attention to his endeavours and he mentioned how difficult that was during um, the pandemic and she asked whether uh, people's focus was kind of on whatever tragedies are happening in the world right now and Mike drops this incredible gem about people's attention actually rising but the content producers getting smaller and smaller unless they were to sustain themselves because of the pandemic. And I think that that's such an interesting dynamic for where we are right now. Because it doesn't seem like the content mill has stopped. But if you look at the amount of publications such in news and journalism alone that have had to offload um, staff since the start of the pandemic it's been happening all the way through you know from Rolling Stone to the smallest publications it's happened so I think that was really insightful and and I don't think you get that without an interviewer who doesn't simply ask questions about the artist but is interested in the artist's perspective and I think that's a really important line to draw and I think Christina did that really well and she balanced both those two things really well because the questions she has aren't completely irrelevant you don't, she doesn't ask about, okay, so how's your podcast doing? And then how's, what are your thoughts on Palestine? Like, you know, she makes sure that it's all, it can all be woven back into the original topic. And I thought that was really, really good. Also, I really liked on the website, this is again an aesthetic thing that I pointed out about the website. But if you know, do you guys notice those highlight things I do on certain, yeah, certain yeah. lines? Yeah, so yeah if I was going to mention cool, that too. Yeah, yeah I so the website too. you can turn them off if you want to, but... I found it really comforting because it feels like when you'd make like a revision guides for yourself in school, you kind of like highlight the bits that are really important and really <laughs> insightful. And it's yeah. cool because you get to see highlighted all the gems that Mike drops and they're all over the place. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, let me throw it to you guys. Yeah, go on throw it to you, Mickey. So go yeah, it's just, well, it's a good guide for our podcast specifically. It's like, yeah, oh, exactly. yeah, hone in on these things and then you can talk about them. Um, I wanted to talk about um, 
Well, actually, I think firstly we should shout out that um, it's we're really excited to bring a Christina Lee piece to the podcast. Um, and last week, because our last episode was an interview with Yo, which if you haven't listened to, you should definitely check out. Speaking of dropping gems for three hours. Um, but he shouted out Christina Lee as the, the journalist who he thought we should bring next onto um, the podcast to talk about her career and how extensive it is. And um, so, yeah, so we're really excited to highlight a, a piece by her, I think, as a group. Um, and then shouts Christina Lee, come on the podcast so we can interview you whenever you're yes, ready. Yes, please. Um, but what I thought was really cool, uh, mainly when reading the interview, that I thought was um, specifically different than any other interview we've specifically brought to the podcast or that I think I've ever really read is um, the way that the the transcription was structured felt more like an essay than any other interview that I've read. Um, and I wondered if, if that had to do with her structuring or it had to do with the kind of natural way that the conversation happened. Because, um, I mean, she definitely, you know, edited for content and clarity and sometimes i mean i've done transcriptions too where i'll like just move a question above another one in order to try to keep a narrative but i think um she started out very much like an essay um with the title which ryan mentioned to me also was of the most just the most grabbing parts of the piece itself being nimble yeah. while riding out in uncertainty and as soon as i read that i was like wow that's just such an interesting title off the rip and it like made me think about the time we're in specifically and us as you know us as journalists specifically too we're constantly doing a bunch of different things i mean ryan has a whole career that he's starting in physics and it's like a whole i mean and i know i personally am like doing a bunch of kind of different things at once and have have done it since the world slowed down you like kind of like want to fill up your time on some way to not go crazy so i was like wow this is really intriguing and it was really cool to find out that that was pulled directly from his first answer. So it yeah. kind of acted to me, the title also acted as kind of the thesis and the place to start um, the interview, which was, was felt very essay-like. And then the way that it kind of moved throughout the piece felt very much like kind of each response was like a new paragraph to the essay, kind of reinstilling the point of the thesis um, but also expanding on it. And then he gets all the way down to, to the end and he kind of comes to more um, of a conclusion uh, to to the thesis that's expanded on what it initially is. Um, and it has to do more with like coming up with a, a kind of something poignant out of financial necessity is a wild conundrum. Mm. Um, it's, it's because it's, you know, you're kind of trying to be nimble, but then at the end of the day, you kind of ha the conclusion that you have to come to is how can I like move back and forth between each of these spaces, but then still kind of become financially stable in the end. So the journey from the beginning of the, to the end of the piece really felt like a kind of, well thought out essay and that has everything to do with the way that Christina Lee either structured it or or kind of um naturally led from one question to another to create a true narrative I just thought that was really cool yeah and I think the um the theme of like doing all these different things and being that nimble is something that's always that really spoke to me because one of the most thing, things I find most um inspirational about Open Mike Eagle 
is the amount of stuff that he does mm-hmm. and while being independent and i think like during quarantine so many artists have struggled because they haven't been able to stay they're trying to think all these different ways to stay afloat but mike has established himself to the point where in so many areas like so that the effect of the pandemic has been lesser on him because he's been able to monetize in so many different ways and not everyone can do that obviously you know it t- depends on the type of artist you are but if you can it's so beneficial and this interview really lays out how beneficial it can be you know and i've always wanted to do just like just different things and for no reason like as mickey said like i'm trying to be this I, I have a degree in physics i'm writing for central source i'm trying to publish this anthology as well it's like i don't want to ever just be in one thing and mike eagle is one of the people that really um really maybe want to do that um so yeah brandon i'll let you speak on it now <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in the same in the same vein as exactly what you were saying, like the first thing I got from this interview, because like I mentioned before, like I've listened to some open mic eagle, but haven't really gotten big into like who he is as a person other than hearing, you know, what you said about him. Um, And I think the first thing that really just shocked, not not shocked me, but was like sort of eye opening and like, oh, is just how much that he does is crazy. And then even just like it's not just how much he does. But it's the way that he goes about doing it and his understanding that it's not like it's imperfect. Not everything he does Mm. is always going to be just right the first time. Um, And I found that like really relatable just in how much he's doing. Because, you know, like you said, with like you have all that stuff going on. You know, I feel the same way as a creative that just, you know, we're we're doing the podcast. We're, We're trying to get interviews on the podcast. I'm trying to write. I'm trying to edit. I'm trying to curate my newsletter. And just all those things. And then I know at the same time I'm trying to do all this, uh, you two are waiting on me for an edit on a story. And Mike has that bit in there where he mentions like, and I know that I have all this stuff to do and I owe someone a feature verse and they're just not going to get their feature verse. It's just going to have to wait. Um, And he, he mentions like, I know people are trying to kill me all the time for like how long I've kept them waiting on stuff. And I just found that really relatable that it's like, okay, like that's that's a normal feeling. Like, as successful as Open Mike Eagle is, and he still feels like that, like, it's okay that I feel like that, you know? I don't have to feel pressed, like, I'm not doing a good enough job, or I should be working harder, or I should be doing better, because someone who is as successful and involved as Open Mike Eagle, you know, he's feeling the same way. Um, And a lot of that also ties to what he said about labels and being independent, Um, when he talks about having, you know, taking a pitch to a podcast network. And trying to explain it and it not getting accepted. And he, and he just gets frustrated with having to take his ideas to someone else to validate them, um, which, again, you know, is relatable. I'm sure we can all relate to pitching stories that we think is like, you know, it's going to be a great pitch. It's going to be a great story, but you still have to get it through someone else that you have to convince. So when Open Mike Eagle, you know, he's frustrated and sick of that. So he does like the most badass thing ever. And he's like, I'm going to be my own label. And on my label, I'm going to have a podcast. I'm going to have, you know, TV commentary. I'm going to do music. I'm going to do radio. Like he literally just said, I'm tired of taking all these ideas to all these different people that have to approve them. I'm just going to run them all myself because I know that they're great ideas and they're all on brand with what I do. Um, And then, you know, just Christina gets all that out of him. Uh, If you notice, even at the beginning of the interview, it doesn't say interview. Like the piece is categorized as a conversation. 
Um, and op- open Mike Eagle really, he, I mean, he really just runs with it. Yeah. That takes supreme confidence though, doesn't it? To kind of know that you're ahead of the industry, which you think you need acceptance and funding from to operate. He has like enough supreme confidence in the things that he wants to talk about and his ideas that he, he, re- he thinks is able to think that him bringing these ideas to these people who he thinks can fund them and them saying no means they just don't get where things are moving and that there's an audience for things, which is really difficult, right? Because we all feel like we need support on some level when we bring an idea anywhere. And to get rejection after rejection, it's hard not to, you know, go into a version of self-doubt. Well, like, oh, maybe this actually isn't as relevant as I initially went into this thinking it was going to be and like following through with it anyway and being like, no, there is totally a lane for this, even though these people who have money who can help me don't see it. Um, And I think that's truly remarkable. And it's like a different... Um, I, I, the whole time I was reading the interview, I was kind of comparing him on like the kind of Renaissance man doing a bunch of different things all at once to like a Donald Glover, but you can tell on some level, Donald Glover actually has kind of had the funding for the majority of his career. So he's like really the indie version of Donald Glover. So it's, it's, it's really, you know, super inspiring to me to, to read about someone who, who does it from that lens of things, not kind of going through the way that the industry, navigating through the industry itself, but kind of being anti because your ideas are different than what they are willing to fund. Yeah, and this is a guy who's been in the music industry for a decade, over a decade now. So I think he's, and the way he, he's, I think just the way minds work and the way he is so thoughtful, he's, he's able to see where things are going quite easily. Well, as you say, it might not be as clear in the eyes of people who's bringing these ideas too. Um, so yeah, and you know, he's in terms of like podcasts. He he was one of the first. I th- I think any rapper had a podcast before Open Mike Eagle, Secret Skins back in like twenty thirteen. Did anyone have a podcast before that? Did Joe Budden have a podcast before that? Twenty thirteen? Hell no. Yeah. Joe Budden yeah. was still in the rap game in twenty thirteen. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> that's insane foresight. And then yeah. he stopped it in 2014 to like just do other things for a while. And now he's bringing it back. And have yeah, you guys ever great. listened to the new podcast he is doing with um, DJ Prince Paul from De La Soul? No, but it, I, is that the one uh, call and response? Is that the one? You're no, talking no, no. About? It's called What Had Happened Was. Oh no, I have not. Yeah, see, he's just got so many things going on. It's hard to like yeah. pin down exactly. He what basically it's interviews DJ Prince Paul each week about a different artist he worked with, or a different person he worked with over the years. Yeah. He talks about making comedy rap albums with, with um, Chris Rock. He talks mm-hmm. about working with MF Doom back when he was Devil of X. Like really amazing stories. Wow. That's like crazy. just being able to be so, just being able to be close to these people to um, get these things out. I think Mike Eagle is one of the most incredibly talented people just in terms of the way he sees things. And you can tell by, like, reading this interview. Um, One thing, one question that I really liked from Christina, because it's relevant, is her question about measuring success as a podcast without just devolving to numbers. Yeah. Like, he's talking about his relationship with the numbers is really, really interesting. Yeah. And I remember you saying, like, well, what Christina got from it was, like, you kind of have to work with the numbers rather than be defined by them. And I think that was really awesome because you have to have, like, kind of, as you said, like, confidence in your ideas. Yeah. Numbers aren't reflecting that. That's one thing. That's another thing, isn't it? 
if you do if you say okay I'm going to do it by myself I'm going to make my own podcast network right. and then the numbers just aren't there yet right. and then he says like, yeah, I have to get this out to people I can't just even though I know the idea is strong I still have to get it out so right. what do you guys think of that specifically? I thought that was a really interesting question. Yeah, well, it dives into because you know, like, uh, <laughs> it's the, I'm going back to another the Hot Ones episode that I had just watched. <laughs> going back, it's so funny. Uh, but the, Sean Evans had asked Chance the Rapper uh, what he thought of the Jay Z classic quote: "Women lie, men lie, numbers don't." And it just kind of like, and Chance's answer was somewhat kind of similar to to Open Mike Eagle, which is that like it is way more of a gray area than this kind of like we're it's the numbers or fuck the numbers, which I think people tend to say one or the other. Um, but I, I especially, and then like, um, then this makes me think of, so I just watched the office all the way through for the first time too. And I've been, uh, listening to this podcast actually funny enough, which I should have said at the beginning, which is the oral history of the office, which is hosted by the guy who plays Kevin on the office, which is my favorite character. Um, <laughs> um, but he kind of talks about how at, at the beginning, like the office was like a real risk and the numbers were horrible. And it's kind of that weird conundrum of like self-confidence again, like the numbers are not going to read the potential, especially at the beginning and having to, you know, but you have to pay attention to them because they do matter in sustaining things eventually. Um, but you have to have that supreme confidence at the beginning to be like, okay, even though the numbers aren't there, like, I believe you see the little peaks and you had take like little notices of things and try to like maneuver because you have supreme confidence in your idea that the numbers will eventually go up there. Um, and I, I think, I think open my, he like has a really good understanding of like that, that kind of like Zen back and forth of like, okay, I have to pay attention to this, but I also can't let it be a driving force in how I produce the content that I do have the supreme confidence in has a lane somewhere. Yeah, it's it's having a confidence in your ideas and knowing that you don't need to conform your ideas to what's expected to get numbers, which is kind of, you know, we've talked about like that's kind of a core value of central sauce. Uh, when you when you prioritize the numbers and you care about the numbers, uh, yeah, you're writing whatever is going to get the most general consensus clicks and attention. But it's not going to be the more narrowly focused creative content that's really strong. It might not reach the most people numbers wise. But, you know, if you get someone on your podcast who's like really finds that niche and they spot that in your podcast, then they're like, oh, okay, damn, what else is this guy doing? So, you know, you turn those numbers then into people who are listening to his rap, people who are going to his other podcast. Um, and so while that number may look like a one on his podcast, you know, if you extrapolate that across all of his creative work, it, you know, it grows exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing about the article, well, it's kind of at the end of the article uh, after it that I really liked was like, I don't know if, if the, um, the creative independent do this in all their interviews, but it had a little section that said some things. And then I, I'm guessing they asked the um, subject of the interview just to suggest some, like, random things to consume. And um, Over My Giggle, uh, I'm assuming it's Over My Giggle, put a bunch of X-Men comics. And the reason I'm assuming it's Over My Giggle because of the amount of times he references X-Men in his music. And he has a whole song where he's rapping from the perspective of Juggernaut of the X-Men and paralleling that to being, like, from Chicago. 
So I'm assuming that was him, and if it's him, that's really awesome, because he gave me some cool comic recommendations, as well as a fantastic four story by Jonathan Hickman, who's awesome. So I thought that was legendary. <laughs> and that's everything I've said. Yeah, Mickey, you want to go uh, go right into NPR? Absolutely, I do. Um, okay. This in- incredible, incredible piece. Yes, 100%. Um, I can say uh, without any hesitation, and I mentioned this to, to Ryan and Brandon, uh, I have, firstly, have not been more excited to talk about a piece on this podcast than this one, and... Uh, I'm not into necessarily, well, I, that's kind of a lie. I was about to say I'm not into ranking things, but it's Brandon Ryan. No, but that, that's not true. Um, well, I rank everything not based on what is the best, but is my favorite thing. So that's that's more what I mean. But the, <laughs> this is, uh, and I really, really put a lot of thought into ranking what my favorite is, as Brandon and Ryan know. But this... Uh, <laughs> very much is um just for all of what it represents my favorite piece that i have read this year um so uh the name of the piece is uh, and it's presented by npr uh the south is raps past present and future um and it's by brianna younger so what the what the piece is is it's sort of a um an introductory piece to an even bigger or not bigger as in, you know, bigger as in, like, length of the actual piece that outlines um, different either songs or albums of Southern rap. Uh, I I don't remember off the top of my head where it starts from, but over a a range of of a solid 20 to 30 years of Southern rap that, you know, from the beginning of it, that was impactful to uh, a range of really, like, the X-Men, as we're talking about that, of writers um one one of them being Justin Tinsley who we've highlighted a piece of uh while I've been doing this podcast um which is 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 really an incredible thing to to read through um some really crazy deep cut southern classics as well as some some very well known ones my favorite was uh of that part was on Ludacris's word of mouth which is really um that that album really impacted, I think, my taste overall, specifically. And there's also a mystical album. And I've, I've said this, I actually said this, guys, to Carter on our, <laughs> I don't think I've ever said it to you, but I was like a kid listening to like what my parents um, raised me on, which was like Earth, Wind & Fire and Al Green. And then I like started listening to the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And then all of a sudden I, I heard Shake Your Ass by Mystical and it changed my life. um i really there's so the thing that people don't remember about that song firstly is like they think of just like the lyrics and like the mystical like put the foot in the head put the foot no be cool and like the delivery of that thing but then forget about like that monumental pharrell uh pharrell production on that and like what that sound represented and then like his kind of falsetto delivery on the second half of the chorus after mystical says shake your ass a bunch of times um, and that sound overall was just something that like really hit my soul on a level because it was like mixing this weird part of all of these things that had kind of been presented to me by my parents, like that Pharrell production with that, it like reminded me of mystical, reminded me of James Brown, which is funny because later on he did like a Mark Ronson song, which he really sounded like James Brown. And then like 
Pharrell really had these kind of layered vocals that reminded me of Earth, Wind and Fire and like the kind of, you know, the, the style of both of their vocals together kind of reminded me of Al Green. Um, but yeah, so Southern rap specifically to me has had like a big impact on my, my musical taste overall. Um, and then, so the thing about, uh, this intro that's, that's so great, um, is really, uh, the parallel, uh, that the, the perception or the, uh, the level of appreciation that Southern rap or legitimacy that Southern rap has been given by the overall industry to, uh, the kind of the treatment of, of, of black people in America overall. Uh, and there's a, a paragraph, uh, towards the end, which if this is my favorite piece, this is my favorite paragraph. I feel like I've been doing this a lot on the podcast. Um, <laughs> and I was actually, I really very much planned to stray away from it. Cause I think I'm, Funny enough, not great at reading aloud, but <laughs> I, uh, I really couldn't help but um, start off with, with reading this paragraph because I think it would be doing it an injustice for me to just talk about it without reading the words. Um, so yeah, I'll just, just bear with me while you, while you listen to this paragraph because I think it's just, it's just so worthy of, uh, of expressing through Brianna Younger's words. Okay, so New York will always be the birthplace of this beautiful culture. That is a fact that no one can change or take away. But infinity is the South, the genesis of all popular music mounted on the spirituals and blues of those who built this country. It is an injustice to be rendered additive when one is, in fact, foundational. To reorient rap around the South, or at least to acknowledge that its creative impetus has long been concentrated around the region, is to make room for possibilities. It's to begin to bring into focus that which has been distorted. It's to reject sanitization and shame in the name of fully embracing black people and not just those which have been deemed valuable by respectability and faux ideas of liberation. To play Southern rap is to hear hints of a path forward. So yeah, that um, to me, really sums up what the article is, is all about. Um, and kind of comparing, it reminds me, uh, I'm, so I'm from Baltimore. It reminds me kind of of what the wire does, uh, and why the wire is such a revered show. So it shows in the wire, the most important part is showing how anything that has kind of a bureaucratic structure on some level, the either, um, the good parts of it or the, the negative and the corruption kind of function in the same way. So this is paralleling the, the relationship of like the elitist or supremacist idea of New York rap um, is negating what the South has offered in, in, in the genesis, as she describes, to the, the genre of music itself. Um, and that very feels very familiar to me as, you know, New York will be the birthplace as like the North w- was the, the birthplace of America, right? The Declaration of Independence was signed in Philadelphia and the North represented the Union and where America kind of became itself. And when that is described, it negates 
that slaves built this country. Um, they are the foundation for which America was able to exist as much as what, you know, the ideology and the history has told us is the birthplace. Um, and it's, the article goes into uh, really unbelievable depth to me about how the South and Southern rap really is neglected in order to keep a level of elitism of hmm. New York based or Northern based rap and what that represents. Um, and how that's not only unfair, but it does a disservice to being able to move forward and better the genre as a whole. Um, and that seems to be, to me, the same case that could be made for America. The first step mm -hmm. is to acknowledge the oppression that built this country. And then when we can do that, truly and embrace the reality of that idea then as a country we can move forward and be better um and i think the the reality and it's <laughs> the the south just has so much to offer and that's what this piece and then the secondary piece brings brings to reality the south has so much to offer and has offered so much already that it is impossible to deny um I have a million things I could talk about, but that was a pretty long intro. So I'd love to hear what you guys think about that overall and the piece itself. No, like I love that you started out your thing by um, quoting her because when I was reading it, I couldn't think of much to say independently. All I wanted to do was just quote her because it's just line after line after line, paragraph after paragraph. You could pick any random pair of, like, yes. set of sentences out of this, yes. and it would be bars. Yes. Yeah, exactly. If Brandon was editing this piece, he would comment <laughs> bomb or bars, <laughs> as he does <laughs> yeah. in, the, in our pieces. Um, yes. But yeah. Uh, so, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out a few quotes, because they just gonna... speak... You're probably going to pull out short. ones I have, too. No, I'm saying I've got, I have I've more. I've got quotes, too, so we're just going to end up reading. <laughs> They're going to be the same other ones the that I have. Yeah. I, I'll, add some, I'll add some original commentary, but I, think, I don't think there's that much. But I think. I think that's the best way to go about it is to just read mm -hmm. read lines or paragraphs, and then we can discuss them. But that that really shows the true um, how this article, you know, and I, I'll rank it, fuck it, in comparison to a lot of articles, <laughs> it, it only it's the only just way to talk about it. Um, is is yeah. to read her words and then talk about them. So yeah, Ryan, go ahead. Yeah, so the first thing that I really love is in the first paragraph. So we have a piece about the the South, and we have Outcast on the like the graphic at the top of the piece. So you know what quote's coming. You know, you know the quote is going to be in the piece, and it's the way that she leads up to that certain quote from Andre Three Thousand that I thought was so genius, mm -hmm. and let you know that this this article is different. Um, so she says. There's a saying that history is written by the victors, and Andre 3000 foretold a million stories that night, when on enemy territory, he proudly issued a proclamation, or a prophecy. It's like this, the South got something to say. And I think that word, prophecy, is so important, and so true to the statement, because since then, the South has done nothing but innovate, 
and innovate and innovate within hip hop and be the um the engine of hip hop you know mm-hmm. it's the it's the area that's influencing the music that's bringing in the money to hip hop it's bringing the attention yeah. to hip hop and it's insane to it's insane that this piece go, then goes on to talk about just the pure elitism that the uh the south is on the back end of um and I think just in the first paragraph there, establishing just with that quote alone and the implications of that quote, the um the place that the rap that the South has in rap was just a great way to open up this piece. It immediately puts you puts it into this mind like, yeah, the South has been integral to the recent years of hip hop. Right. I love yeah, go keep on. Going. No, no, keep going. No, I was going to go to another oh. quote. So you, oh, yeah, cool. So that, that just reminds me of another piece, that part of that that I highlighted, which is an extension of that, which um, mm-hmm. that's another great thing that the piece does is it, it, it places an idea and then we'll place a couple other ideas, then go back to yeah. that idea and extend it. Um, and one of those places is where she talks about, and I don't have a direct quote, um, but that, that the Southern style, and you kind of mentioned it as like, you know, what, what it's doing is the aesthetic, it's an aesthetic choice to to make southern rap the style that it is and it has nothing to do with stupidity and i that, have the that, quote that oh you have a quote for that and the, I, I have i have the quote oh awesome and that idea is um yeah why don't you read the quote brandon and then i'll expand on it yeah it's rarely considered that southern rap sounds the way it does as an aesthetic decision rather than due to inability and its practitioners are saddled with the burden of disproving that assumption rather than the privilege of showing up on their own terms. Right, exactly. And it's it kind of functions, again, in that same way that they have to... It's really the, the same thing as, like... This reminds me of, like, what Thomas Jefferson literally um, did scientific studies to try to prove, and within his um, kind of thesis that we kind of talked about before, and, and to prove that black people were less intelligent than white people. Like he went into the scientific study and like, this is my goal. How do I prove that this is true? And it's the same thing of this kind of elitist Northern ideology about hip hop, which is how do we, we, if we keep calling this kind of this style really like non lyrical, or as she mentions a lot in the piece, mumble rap, uh, we will, kind of instill this idea which we need to keep our own elitism and superiority as this is the stupid part of the genre and that our and the birthplace and like this lyrical northern hip-hop is actually where the intelligence comes from and that's just an idea to keep that um the level of supremacy and she even mentions that um successful southern rappers who branch out of you know who mm-hmm. achieve success are always considered only exceptional, that they're exceptions from the rest of Southern rap. Right. And then the, even the implication even the implication behind that is that there's sort of this narrative that tries to separate them from Southern rap. You know, where you think of like someone like Future or, you know, Young Thug, T.I., Migos, Outkast. Like I'm thinking, you know, these are obviously these are specifically Atlanta examples. But were some of the first ones that came to my mind, you know, especially when she's mentioning mentioning Outcast, that when Outcast is deemed exceptional and successful, they are, you know, as part of the narrative, separated from the rest of Southern rap 
that they excelled because they are better than the rest of Southern rap, mm-hmm. not that they're a part of Southern rap. Totally. I mean, and that that sounds exactly like the the classic narrative. Oh, you're one of or the you know racist statement saying the, oh you're one of the good ones. One of the good. It ones. sounds like the exact the the exact mm-hmm. kind of uh, hip hop parallel to that thing. And that's I mean, it just like really what makes this piece so important um, is like it does this um, incredible thing of like taking what is is incredibly impossible to deny, deny which is the relevancy of hip hop right and making it um it's using something that is kind of the gateway to a conversation about race i think cuz if you start with this if you're someone who like likes to listen to hip hop and you kind of have some understanding of like the north versus south and see how it works and you go oh then you can kind of lead someone with a conversation about music which maybe potentially to them feels less threatening of a thing and then lead into an even deeper conversation about race. Um, so I think, I don't know if Brianna Younger intended to do this, but if she did, she's a fucking genius. But that, <laughs> if, like making that kind of I, um, uh, a bridge to that conversation through a, a conversation about music is just an unbelievable thing to do. Well, I think, I think that's definitely intentional. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, I, and I think what the the easiest way to tell that that's intentional is that's how she starts the piece out yeah. immediately, like yeah. immediately right off the bat. Um, she starts about the comparison to, uh, you know, black people. Most of the black people in the country are in the South, and yet they're expected to give way to the opinions of the, you know, the power of the East Coast and the West Coast. So I think that's definitely intentional. Um and, you know, kind of a, a funny story about this piece. Like, I usually, I like to read these pieces, like, right before I go to work. Because then when I'm at work, you know, I'm spending the time and I'm, like, thinking about, like, mm-hmm. the ideas the piece presented. Yeah. And, you know, just kind of thinking them. So I, I looked at this piece and I kind of scrolled through it. And I was like, oh, it's not that long. Um, you know, I'll sit down and, like, read this right before I go to work. But it's so incredibly dense. Mm-hmm. Like, this piece is so, so dense. incredibly dense. Yeah that I ended up 20 minutes late to work because I had to like <laughs> scroll back and like reread some parts I and, know. you know, had to take, take a note. Uh, and I think that to Brianna Younger's credit, um, a lot of journalism, and if you study journalism, you are taught to make ideas accessible, to make things easy to read, almost as if you are not, it sounds like mean to say, but like writing to the common denominator. Sure. You know, you have, inf- you have information that a lot of people need to understand. So for, in order for the most people to understand it, you angle it at the one who it's going to be, um, you know, towards the end of the spectrum so that it's then every single person in the spectrum can get the knowledge. But Brianna doesn't do that. She really gives her audience and her readers some credit here. Mm. Um, and in that, and that shines through in how much stronger the piece is because of that. Yeah. I think yeah. wholeheartedly. Yeah, she doesn't she doesn't yeah, and that that's why it's such a, a good bridge because she did just never at any point I think shies shies away from digging into uh what is behind each thing and that kind of goes back into what I was saying is presenting an idea then going back and then expanding upon it constantly until you get to that paragraph before the last paragraph about talking about how New York's the birthplace. Yeah. Ryan? Yeah, back to my quotes. No, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you guys really like went into it hard. So only thing I can do is quote her because wait, one of the things you talked about is hypocrisy, which is what 
the foundation of this piece really is. And it was this quote also blends what you guys said was like this um less less concentration on trying to make sure the lowest common denominator can understand it and more just this emotional resonance that she's trying to achieve. And she does that through the series of questions. She says, um, how do you come to a place so much... How Damn, I messed it up already. Wow. Right. Literally <laughs> the next thing I was going to go into was the Is that the same paragraph. one? Oh my God. Perfect. <laughs> Nailed it. Go ahead. Okay. How do we come to place so much worth and power in the people and institutions that decide we have so little? How is it that for so long the story of hip-hop, a genre prized on its ability to make visible those who have been rendered invisible, has involved largely writing off and out the section of the country that houses the highest percentage of black people? So, what do we impact from that? So, <laughs> as Mickey said, it's such an analogy to America in general mm-hmm. and just our society, a Western society in general. Yeah, yeah. And just using this microcosm of hip hop, it's wild the elitism and the classism that exists. Yeah. Like, do we not have enough of that just in a macro scale? You know. Yeah. Then having it in this this uh this thing that's meant to be fun, that's meant to be expressive. Yeah. yeah. You know. It's it really, ang- it's it's angering like it's yeah. frustrating it's, to read. It really, yeah. Go yeah. On, well, it's like when you okay when you have like a group of people who are in power, and this applies to hip hop. This applies to, uh, you know, cultural relevance, historical relevance. So when you have a group of people in power, and you allow that group of people to set the metric for what's successful, if they get mm. to make the algorithm for what is considered successful then for as long as you're abiding by that ag- algorithm and as long as you're abiding by that rules, you're not going to be successful by their standards because they set the standards to stop you from being successful. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, when they talk about even like the critical analysis that they went into, um, that you have, you know, journalists who have been, you know, much longer established either on the West Coast or the East Coast, constantly battling about, you know, no, East Coast is better, West Coast is better. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you begin to get this rise from the South with Outkast. You get the feeling that they are just like, what? Like, sit down, like you're distracting us. Yeah. Yeah. And and they break that down in the critical analysis. Right. And one of the things she does in the piece that is so great is when she begins to say, like, why, well, at least maybe this is one of an original thought for me, is like, why even do we call this whole huge group Southern rap? Like, why, like, because she, like, let me just read the part where she branches what contails mm-hmm. Southern rap. Yeah. Um, so she says, stretches from Texas to Southern Virginia and points in between. But oh, wait, hold up. The act of canon making is difficult no matter the parameters. To make one for Southern rap is an especially Cephesian task that begins with the arduous exercise of defining the region's borders. This one stretches from Texas to Southern Virginia and points in between, but largely skirts the Midwest, namely Missouri, and the Mid-Atlantic, namely D.C., Maryland, and North Virginia. It ends with defining its equally amorphous sound from Miami Bass to New Orleans Bounce to Memphis Buck to Houston Chopped and Screwed to Atlanta Trap and derivatives thereof. Just within that list of like genre, subgenre sounds and cultures, 
that like how can you put a label on that and just put all that stuff in the same bag yeah. and say that's southern rap yeah mm-hmm. it, it it does it it's just a way to label something so that you can other it in totally. large swaths entirely yeah, yeah. And I one go- of the things that go. um sorry I was going to say this real quick that um one of the things that you said about that links to it being like an intentional analogy to kind of race relations in America is the way she described mumble the term mumble rap as, as a microaggression, a microaggression. Yeah. A microaggression. Yeah. Like so those are terms used to oppress, yeah. really, aren't they? If you think of it, it's yeah. a it's a trigger word for East Coast, you know, uh, rap heads to get angry at and like scream into their phones about like, oh, these mumble rappers, you know. It's, yeah. uh, it's a yeah. buzzword. And she calls she calls or she references the when Young Thug gets popular um that it was called post lyrical or post post vocal rap or post vocal music as as a way to other it as a okay this is some weird offshoot of hip-hop and she even says instead of considering it an advancement of the sound which is obvious because look how much more music has come in that genre for young thug you know with like the gunners (laughs) and stuff like that so it's it clearly wasn't just like a oh this is this offshoot of you know post lyrical post vocal rap that how is this getting popular it's clearly a driving force of where the genre is going yeah or you know at least a subsection of the genre yeah i so to completely just disregard that and other it is irresponsible to hip-hop as a whole oh oh entirely and i think that that's actually a good transition to what i was say gonna say going back to the question um paragraph again ryan which is uh Mm -hmm the the incredible tactic that she uses in that paragraph which is really calling the people out who decided to other southern rap which is how can you possibly do this mm-hmm. to in within the genre of music that the this is where fuck the police came from this genre represents <laughs> this genre represents going against the oppressor this is this is what we stand for, and you're doing the same fucking thing that the rest of music tried to do to hip-hop. So it's mm. using that idea and of, like, you guys think that you're trying to protect something by othering these other styles of of the genre itself, but you're just acting like the people who shoot away hip-hop in the first place, and you're, you're being the people that hip-hop was fighting against. And that using... Yeah, I mean, and she even ties that... She even ties that to beyond the music and just for the, you know, the uh, the consideration of just black people in the South and the Midwest in general, even yeah. beyond the music. Yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah, um, it's just I've, I've never seen a, a paragraph full of questions. I've never seen anybody <laughs> do that. Have you guys ever seen that before? When I, when I read that, I was like, holy shit, especially because uh, it just makes so much sense. None come to mind, but. Like, I know this one's going to live in my memory. Like, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't seen anything as poignant as that. Yeah. Where every question has to so... Yeah, totally. poignant. I'm going to use that word again. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> one... Um, oh, this is my last quote. But, um... <laughs> she says... I, I don't have anything to even to preface this with. But I'm just going to say it. Said, uh... We arrive here on the anniversary of Andre 3000's call to battle. With everything different, different and yet unchanged. And if you look at how Southern rap has evolved since then, it's gone through so many iterations. It's 
like reinvented itself every couple of years really so all that stuff is different but you still have <laughs> quote unquote old heads which is its own totally. microaggression yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. screaming into microphones about uh, mumble rap and the, these southern rappers and about how and what we haven't mentioned yet is how it's classified as not real rap yep. how yep. it's yep. taken out of the genre completely and how totally. we've tried and tried to categorise it as a different thing and oh man yeah well it's a, that kind of that's a really great um quote i think to be our final quote ryan uh i it's i always think about um history as uh it always repeats itself more than it ever progresses and it kind of goes in this circular mm. motion slightly going upward yeah. and then kind of falling kind of like a tornado a little bit yeah just like the structure of one um and I think that that's kind of the thing is, is like, you know, hip hop has advanced as a total overarching art form. Um, but at the same time, the, the roots of elitism that it was started with on some level, whenever there was these other people who kind of helped build it, because it's impossible to deny based on the history that they give in the next piece, even too, that Southern, Southern rap, Southern hip hop helped build the genre to where it is today as much as the birthplace. Um, so it's it's exactly paralleled to like the version of like where we've advanced in the United States since the civil rights movement on some level. And even though we have advanced on some level, there are certain like policies that have been instilled that were not back then based off of like people seeing people getting sprayed with hoses that have made things a little bit better. But it just because that's the case, it doesn't mean that all of the stuff that created that in the first place is gone. Um, so that, that's just a great kind of final statement of the, the parallel, I think, that she was trying to make by writing the whole piece. And now let's move on to Sean Evans and T-Pain, two of the world's most fun and kind people <laughs> I have ever seen in a conversation together. I think we have to just let Brandon do his thing now. I think we should we just gotta let mute him go. ourselves for a little while. Fanboy. I'm going to try to keep my intro a little short since we are running slightly long on the time. But so, okay, here we go. Hot ones, right? This is one of my favorite sh- I, I i swear okay i didn't do like a mickey thing where i sat and watched every single episode of hot ones <laughs> like it from history but thing. like over over the course like i have prob i probably have seen every episode of hot ones because i watch the right. ones that are even with interview interview right. subjects that i'm not interested in just because of how good i think sean evans is at interviewing and how great that this interview format is at getting the best possible material out of the interview subjects um and so i mean so so at its base what it is is you you want to get your interview subject like like we mentioned before when we were talking about open mic eagle the goal is to get your interview subject to drop something or give you something that they haven't given to another interviewer you you want to put them in a state where they're either thinking something new or they're caught by surprise 
maybe a little off guard and they give you a more genuine, a more honest, you know, a more truthful picture of who they are because they're not just, you know, sitting in a stool at a PR event and just answering questions to promote their next album. So, you know, interviewers have tried a thousand ways of doing this, um, you know, just with their own niche, their own little quirks that they bring to an interview. But no one, no one has even come close to doing this as successfully as what Hot Ones does. Like, and it's something about, um, I mentioned before that I have, that I actually have the Hot Ones sauce, um, the last Redux. And I, so I've like, I've tried it before and like, let me tell you like how hot this shit is. It literally like, and, and I didn't even do, I didn't even do the whole lineup to this. Like I literally just like took, you know, I've done like done it on a few occasions, but like take a tortilla chip and just dab it and eat it. And this shit is so hot that it, you, it gets you high. Like, I'm not even kidding. And you can like, you can like read, like read this shit. If you talk about people who have like study hot peppers or whatever, like it mm, literally yeah. puts you in a, like a different state. But because it's a sauce on a wing, you know, you don't have to pitch it like, yo, we're going to get your interview subject drunk as shit and then just drill them with a bunch of questions to see what they say. Or like, yo, we're going to get your interview subject like high and we're going to drill them with a bunch of questions. But it has a very similar effect in a much more friendly and a much more like entertaining aspect to it. So then so now, OK, so now that's the groundwork for the show. That's the groundwork for the show. And then you get Sean Evans. And I, I, I so like I've mentioned before on this podcast how I, I study interviews because one of the things that I want to do like with my career is to, you know, either like host an interview show or just be a really great profile writer on artists that so, – so you just pick up on these little things that interviewers do to get more out of their subject or that, that interviewers do to make their subject more comfortable or to reel things in when they need to reel them in or to expand on things when they need to expand on them. And I think Sean Evans is one of the best at that. And I think the first thing that makes him so great, uh, I'm just going to read from T-Pain, what T-Pain said in this episode of Hot Ones specifically. Um, the very last question, which is you know usually something that's you know, they've, they've just finished, they have the hottest wing, you want to hit them with something, like, entertaining, something interesting, it's usually, like, the biggest question, um, and Sean asks T-Pain that T-Pain's such a fun guy, why has he come back on the show a second time? Um, you know, why does he think doing this show is fun? And T-Pain's response is, you as a person, man, and he says this between coughs and tears as he's <laughs> choking on the hot sauce, uh, you as a person, man, Usually on stuff like this, the host wouldn't do it at all. The fact that you do it with people and the fact that you're actual friends and you look after us and stuff like that, man, I think it's you that makes this show so damn great. We do interview on top of interview on top of interview every day, and it's great that I can agree to do an interview with you because you actually go deeper into things. You actually do the challenge with us. You actually give a shit if we're throwing up or not. It's a level of respect between interviewer and interviewee. You make this thing. It's you that makes this fun. And you're such a cool fucking guy, and I think we all love you more than doing this dumb shit. <laughs> and isn't that isn't that the fucking truth of oh, it? Like, totally. isn't that the core of it? Totally. No one would come on this show and literally torture themselves on camera, and put their for, like also from a PR standpoint, you think of it, put themselves in a more vulnerable state mm -hmm. in an interview if it was anyone other than Sean Evans, mm -hmm. like the nicest guy in the universe. 
And, and, and how, like, how easy, I mean, you know, like, how incredible it is that he's gotten that perception out so successfully when it's not like he had, like, some of the, obviously some of the people he interviews, he has personal relationships with, um, but that's, like, everyone knows that, everyone understands that, and they don't even show all that much of Sean Evans in the interviews. Like, I'm sure that there's a lot of editing that goes on, and there's stuff, like, in between, but, um... You know, like that, he just really gets that out there, and it makes for these great interviews. Yeah. Uh, and one of the reasons I thought that this video specifically um, is just because of we had recently talked about NPR Tiny Desk and how Tiny Desk had adapted to doing, you know, at home concerts because of COVID. Um, and this was an episode of Hot Ones where they do it at home with T Pain. And I just thought, you know, we can also talk a bit about what has made some of these shows successful in, a, in the COVID transition to doing at-home work. Um, and in this show in particular, I'm sure from the interviewee's standpoint, they are much pleased to have access to their own bathroom instead of the uh, studio <laughs> bathroom for at the shooting of Hot Ones. So what did you guys think of this episode in particular? Um, what do you think that they've done successfully for the transition, the COVID transition to at-home stuff? I think uh, the the... The thing to me, actually, Brandon, is it, the reason why this is actually the best hot ones to bring to this show, I think, is is because of that last quote by T-Pain and because he highlights it is like a really good way to mm-hmm. kind of transition for us to talk about it. Um, and Brandon mentioned at the beginning of me going back to the beginning and like making a list for something. And he was referencing what I did for NPR Tiny Desk. And just so the audience knows, I definitely did do that for hot ones, too. So, <laughs> um, but so I, yeah, I went back to the beginning, but I think it's actually good that I did funny enough, uh, because I think it's an interesting talking point, uh, with a lot of the things that you said, which is, uh, Sean Evans being, being who he is, is the reason that hot ones is successful. And I think, I think it's super interesting. And we've talked about this a little bit before how, um, shows will kind of grow over time. They don't start out where they end up being, which makes them so great. And I think the exact same thing can be said for hot ones. And I'm sure Sean Evans, if you heard this would totally agree at the beginning of hot ones. If you watch like the first season and the first couple episodes, he's way more aggressive. Like he goes into the interviews and he's like, all he's like very much like frat bro. And he's like, Oh bro, I bet you can't eat these fucking wings. <laughs> and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then he like does that with Tony Yayo and he's like a little bit of a douche even. And it's kind of funny to watch that because I, I didn't like, of course I watched a few of the more recent episodes before I went all the way back and I was like, Oh my God, he learned this over time. He was like, he tried it kind of worked it all out and he thought it was going to be a competition show. So he had to put on a bit of this persona. And what I'm assuming is, is that where the way that he kind of operates the show now, be, just because of how much more relaxed he is, it feels like it's more inherent to who he is as a person too. So he kind of learned over time that if he used more of himself and he kind of chilled out and was like, I'm going to do this with you and we're going to kind of walk through it. And I'm just really appreciative of you being there, being here and doing this. Um, it has become what it is today, but it's, it's, I think it's, it's interesting. It just did not start out that way. Um, he really had to learn it over time. And I, I encourage everyone actually to go back and watch the beginning because it's really wild to see the transition, even from just the place he's at in season one to where he's at in season two. Um, and I actually, it's funny just cause I mentioned that, um, 
a lot, so many shows do this. I mentioned that the office podcast earlier too, and the kind of the same thing happened. They had a season one, not really great ratings and they kind of expanded it and literally kind of did a similar thing, like made it more likable on purpose, even through the cringe comedy that it does. And that's really what expanded the audience of the show. So even from season one to the first episode, I remember thinking of season two of hot ones, they do kind of the same thing. Sean's way more likable. And then by season three, he really starts to like catch his rhythm. Um, but the, the, the episodes are really night and day. Luckily it was kind of the same thing as the office. Like the show setup is so good innately, which Brandon was talking about, but then mm -hmm. him as a personality, as he grew that personality, that's really what cemented it and made it grow. Yeah. And I think Sean recognizes that like, look, this is a show where we're going to get a lot of white people who can't handle spice to <laughs> eat a bunch of spicy shit. So yeah. they need to look across the table and see a figure of hope and a figure of, like, you know, stability. They need to be able to... <laughs> to so, like, okay, if this white guy across from me can handle this spice, I, as a white person, must be also able to, to do this. <laughs> but, um... And I think that's a real thing, though. Like, they need, yeah. like Sean is, like, unmoving. He's unyielding at this point, so far in. He's done this so many times. Yeah. That, like, you see it when he has the question too early where they're still dying, but like, he's just like, anyway, so we looked at your Instagram. <laughs> and he even, like, he's even, so, like, one of the things, like, I've noticed is when he asks a question, obviously, the goal is to, like, get the question out there, like, while they've got the heat going on. Yeah, like, yeah. So the, to watch the comedy of them, like, try to answer the question through that. Yeah. But then a lot of times, you know, there's too much going on, and they're literally unable to answer the question. So if you notice, Sean doesn't just sit there and ask the question over and over. Yeah. He slightly rewords the question or he takes it at a different take yep. and a different angle. Yep. So it, it's still a way to like sort of adapt and evolve to it. And I think like being able to adapt is probably one of the best interview skills that anyone can mm -hmm. have. Totally. And I mean, if <laughs> like if there's any interview situation that you're going to need to adapt, it's the interview when your subject is like dying across the table from you totally yeah yeah totally i also think he just i mean we've we talked about his adapting and you kind of touched on this brandon but we have to talk about his preparation level the only person who's on, on level with him is nardwar mm. like yeah, but he does nardwar, but yeah. the thing that he started to do recently and he does in the t-pain episode that i think is really cool is he picks a specific question to relate t-pain to himself with that burrito taco question where he talks about <laughs> yes! which is like such a uh, it's such a good tactic especially when someone's dying off the hot sauce is like bro we went through the same thing like i tried to eat a taco from the top and everyone rebelled against me and then you said this thing about eating a burrito from the side from the side and everyone was like no and then t-pain <laughs> magically goes yeah dude because then the burrito turns into a taco and it's like this really <laughs> And it, okay, and like something like that, like do you know what that reminds me of is like I said, like how I study interviews a lot and like it – but it reminds me that it's not all about being so intense and like being the best interviewer. It, it's also about fun. It's about having fun. Yeah. You know, it's about building a relationship and getting that rapport. You could go into an interview the most prepared, the most structured, intense, you know, oh, interview yeah. that all – by on paper, by all means – you're going to get a great interview out of it. Yeah. But if you forget that, like, that this shit is fun and you forget that you're sitting across from another person, oh, totally. it, it, it's not like it just comes out cold. Totally. 
the thing to chase, I feel like, and I've had this moment a few times, and it's been my favorite part of doing interviews, which Sean gets at least one almost every Hot Ones episode, which makes it so great, is what you want, I think, is for the person that you're interviewing to be like, oh, bro, I can't believe you you asked me that. I'm so glad you asked me that. And that's like kind of what the burrito taco question is. But when I've done interviews, the best feeling is when they're like really excited that you asked them a question that they didn't think you were going to ask. And there's even, well, there's even questions that he asks that he sort of knows the answer that they're going to give, but he asks it just to hear them talk about it. Mm. And I think knowing, like knowing which questions to pick out that will do that successfully is also a very tricky thing to do. Um, you know, because if you ask something that's, like, super obvious, then they just kind of give a dry just representation of what you've pretty much already heard. But if you ask a question about something that it's, like, something that you know someone is specifically passionate about but is not, like, super out there and super obvious that they're passionate about it, then they're going to jump on that opportunity to just go off. And you're going to get so much good stuff out of that. Yeah, and I think that's, like what the show rep- show represents as a whole it's about in an age where like your personality is just as important as your art and you don't have to go into the show just to promote the art but you go on the show because you want to show yourself as a personality and the questions that they ask lean into that you know it's not just about what's the new album you know you get stuff that's about them as a person and you get a comedic side and you get they you know i think like the tweets is watching and the Instagram one. I forgot the name for the section, but like those are really good ways to um, like go deep into the personality of the artists or just whoever's on the celebrities on the show. But yeah, um, do you guys want to hear my hot ones hot take? Hit hit us on that. <laughs> yes. I'll, after you, I'll I'll hit them with my hot ones hot okay. ones hot okay. take. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, in my theory is. Okay, basically, I do not believe in the hotness of the sauces until I try it myself, or I see a Desi person, either from England or directly from South Asia, try it. So, you get these, like, you get a bunch of Americans. They have to be either England, they have to be British, or... British Desi, British Desi, or from South Asia. So, like, Padma Lakshmi doesn't count. I think that is. Padma Lakshmi? (laughs) Uh, Charlie just said in the Slack, I knew Ryan would say this. (laughs) Dude, Padma Lakshmi is one of the hosts on Top Chef, and she, but she's not. She's from um, Queens originally. Mm, She has a show on Hulu, but she, yeah, her family is is uh, definitely from India. Okay, doesn't count. So if her family were on the show, you know, (laughs) I think Kamel Nanjiani's been on the show, but I think Kamel Nanjiani's been in America too long. America has softened him. I think, right. like, John, John okay. Boyega right. was almost okay all the way through. And that proves my theory almost. If you had a Desi person from London, from Peckham, dude, trust me, they would have <laughs> just cleaned it. Alright. <laughs> As my theory, I don't think... I, there are Sean some... Evans, Sean Evans, if you listen to this, I'll gladly ch- take on the challenge. Send me the chicken. <laughs> send me the You're going to literally eat your words, right? Yeah, yeah I'll do it. I'll do it. Words. I'll do it. But, I, I you know, really I'm pretty sure I'll be okay because I am Desi and it's in my blood. Anyway, what's yours? Well, Padma was well. Firstly, Padma Padma was pretty okay comparatively, but still, no one has been more okay than YG. You have to watch that episode. He literally dunk. He yeah, like YG doesn't like, yeah, not even face like literally the, zero emotion. Then he's like, 
Then he says some crazy shit. He's like, the wings stop, wings stop like crazy spicy sauces spicier than this like gajillion <laughs> Scoville. And I was like, what the hell? And even Sean was like, it's absolutely not, but okay. And then, but then he dumps the last <laughs> sauce on it a, a bunch and he's like, oh, okay, this is hot. And then the camera cuts. But I feel like, I feel like he was just trying to like act like a G and then he died. All but, I'm saying <laughs> is you wouldn't have a Coolio situation with a brown person, with right. a Desi person. Kudio right. would still be alive today if he was Desi. <laughs> right. So, uh, it's not so much of a, a hot take, but funny enough, in our Slack group chat, um, I believe it was Ryan who made the joke, I can't wait to hear Mickey's top 15 <laughs> Hot Ones episodes. Well, joke's on you, motherfucker. I don't have a top 15 <laughs> Hot Ones episode, but I do have a list that I made that is slightly different. Top 10 potential Hot Ones guests. So here okay. we go. Number one, Wrong Nardwar. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, Larry David. Number three, and this is still definitely one of my favorites, Denzel Washington. Number four, oh. <laughs> Dave Chappelle. Number five, Michaela Cole. Number six, at the same time, Michelle and Barack Obama. Number, se- <laughs> 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 Number seven, Drake. Number eight, this one's for Brandon, Freddie Gibbs. Number nine, yeah. Adele. And absolutely the most desired Hot One guest of all time, Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> Didn't Wait, he has do Jeff one? Goldblum gone on there yet? Yeah, okay, Jeff Goldblum is what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yes, he has. No, you know who okay. Gilbert Gottfried okay. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I, 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 was, I was thinking of, uh, I got it mixed up with Goldblum okay. in my head. Um I don't know. Nardwar cannot handle it when he loses control of an interview. Like, have you seen him with uh, Eric Andre? Right, right, right. Have you seen the most when recent Nardwar, Eric Nardwar, Andre hot ones? Yeah, he, yeah. he yeah. didn't finish it. No, he, he died. He died. I've never seen <laughs> yeah. anyone die more than Eric Andre just did with his second one. Yeah. Well, the, the problem comes when everybody starts touching their eyes, right. which is another thing I noticed. When T-Pain, the second T-Pain wipes his eyes, Sean's like, all right, let's get this interview moving. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he knows, he knows he's on over. a timer, and he still, he still wants to finish the interview. And then even, like, specific to that T-Pain one, too. So I mentioned how, like, you know, it's great how Hot Ones is fun and exciting, and it's, like, hilarious. But then it's also, like, he does have hard-hitting, serious questions. Um, one that stood out to me for T-Pain was like, okay, like, you know, if you're thinking of questions to ask T-Pain that aren't specific to T-Pain, you know, they're not about his career, they're not about his life, they're not about, they're not about him. Um, who, what kind of question do you ask someone who's been in the, in the industry for so long through so much growth? And, uh, you know, what is important right now? And he asked T-Pain um, about the artist label situation. Yeah. And how it's changing and how, you know, artists are beginning to decide that they don't need the uh, the label. And he waits towards the, the end of the interview. So it's like on a really hot wing. I think it might have even been a question on Da Bomb. So I, and I think it's interesting how he picks his questions for like which hot sauce. that You know, that could have been a softball question you ask early on mm. because you want the most concise response. But he waited until it was a really hot one. And then the fact that T-Pain gives such a good solid response is just also a testament to how knowledgeable that t-pain is that even under duress like he can give such a great and like eloquent like response to the artist label situation um which he basically sums up by saying that artists are you know with the increase of information accessibility in the internet 
artists now know what it is that labels do um, and basically realizing that it's not a magic power that on, that is only able to be done by a label. Um, and so artists are kind of adjusting to that. Yeah. And like, he also speaks on like Twitch and I forgot exactly what it was. Yes. But it was... Um, gone. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, so Twitch streamers and labels. Yeah. Um, a label will be really quick to pull or, you know, to sue a streamer if they're mm-hmm. playing a song uh, because of copyright, like on their stream. But then at the same time, Twitch streamers are one of the first people that labels go to when they want their music promoted. Right. Yeah. Um, and T-Pain talks about how that relationship just doesn't really sit well with him because uh, they let off the interview with how T-Pain has released yeah. basically for free access, like just a shitload of his beats. Yeah, which is a part of what makes the show great is that you get to see the personality of these people shine through and that's a massive part of what makes t-pain t-pain is that he's such a nice guy and he's here he's for so the funny. music like this is a guy who could sing amazingly his entire career but chose to be a pioneer in autotune because he's just that concerned with musical growth like that's just so amazing to me and it really comes through this interview how cool he is and it's so funny and genuine when he's talking about how he won the mass singer and how yeah. like he did it you know did it without autotune and t-pain's literally just laughing he's like laughing his ass off he's like i showed you bitch like assholes <laughs> <laughs> so like it's it's hilarious how he still takes such pride in like giving people that fuck you yeah you yeah, know because yeah. it, it's it's like he's known how crazy talented he is all this time, and you have people saying shit like that he's just used it for autotune. Yeah. And, you know, you would think there's lots of celebrity personalities who would just brush that off, like, well, fuck them, that doesn't matter. But D-Pain still, like, laughed and, like, took glory in the, like, the fuck you moment of mm. that, yeah. Yeah, which was great. just, you know, it's super so genuine to see. Yeah, man, shout out Sean Evans. Um, yeah. Come on the show, please. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, would, we would love to interview Sean Evans. Big time. Um, so I'm going to go back and shout out all the rest of the wonderful journalists and wonderful pieces that we've covered on today's episode. So first we covered on being nimble while writing out uncertainty, an interview with Christina Lee and Open Mike Eagle. I'm sorry, a conversation with Christina Lee and Open Mike Eagle. Um, then we discussed the South is Rap's Past, Present, and Future by Brianna Younger, and that is an NPR and last but not least, of course, we covered T-Pain, Taste Gas, While Eating Spicy Wings, a Hot One episode starring T-Pain and Sean Evans. If you are listening to this podcast and you are a writer, please send us your writing. Uh, if you are a fan of a small independent writer who's writing for a publication that we have not heard of, please mm. send us their writing. We would love to cover some more small publications, some small writers, because we know you guys are out there doing amazing shit writing amazing stuff and sometimes it's just really difficult to find and get a hold of so please yeah and um on a personal note i forgot to mention this at the start where i was doing my plugs but um be sure to check out my piece that's coming out soon but hopefully by the time this comes out it'll be out that uh, brandon helped actually edit which is a piece about uh parasite the movie uh german football soccer for the americans and i reference an open mic eagle song uh, Happy Waste Sunday, which you referenced at the start of the podcast. In oh, that, really? Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to. I go. Oh, I can't wait to read that piece now. <laughs> I it's been it's been so long, like since I edited it. Yeah, yeah. That I can't wait to see like what what has changed about it because I don't even think I read it after, after. you like addressed my edits. Oh. Huh.
I should have told you about when I had it as well. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I can't I can't wait. I'm excited. Yeah, and uh, Mickey, anything else to plug? Uh, I think I plugged all my shit at the beginning. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. Fine saucer, fine saucer. <laughs> yep, thanks for listening, everybody. episode of In Search of Source featured Ryan Gore, Brandon Hill, Mickey Hellebach of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor of the Fifth M Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Basti, as a job records for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth M Podcast Network production. Links with Basti, job records, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.